0: How we doing? How we doing? Hey, this morning we're going to wrap up our study through the book of Genesis, and uh, you know it's been about two years we've been at this, or at least parts of two years, uh, to get to this point. So uh, we'll wrap up today, and we will get to um, we'll get to the Christmas story beginning next week, and uh, look at that for the next couple weeks until we. Uh, conclude it at, at around Christmas time, and I'm looking forward to the Christmas Eve service where we get to talk more about the coming of Christ into the world and, and what that means. Got an important question to ask you. You all know the answer, or you should. What is the gospel? Remember? There's, raise again from the dead. Okay, Tony Malik, he knows. All right, all right. Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, right? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. Even as we're in one of these historical books, as we're talking about we're talking about Joseph and the patriarchs and Jacob and uh, all of his sons and all these things, I never want us to lose sight of the gospel so that if someone were to ask you or you were to have opportunity to talk to someone about the gospel, and about what Jesus Christ coming into the world, particularly at this time of year. This is a good opportunity. Every opportunity is a good one, by the way. But this is a particularly good one because people are thinking about Jesus out in our culture. You know, you're going to get the here in a week or two the semi-annual Heresy Edition, Time and Newsweek magazine, right? And they're going to tell you about how... Uh, well, what the Bible says about Jesus isn't specifically true according to the latest research from whichever heretic they've decided to identify, right? And uh and v- people are gonna be talking about that. And there's gonna be people that are gonna be talking about Jesus being the real reason for the season, and you're gonna be have opportunity to say Merry Christmas to people and they're gonna say whatever they say, happy holidays, seasons, greetings, you know, Merry Hanukkah, whatever it is. And and you're going to have opportunities to share the gospel with people. that you, Do you really understand what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown? Right? And it's about the coming of a Messiah. It's about the coming of the long-promised king, the son of David, born of a virgin, born of the line and house of David, to be the great king, the one who was to come, the one who all Moses and the prophets looked forward to, who was to come not to stay a baby, nice as that scene is, but to grow and to live a perfect life that you and I could not live and to, to die as the sacrifice for all sin for all human beings throughout all history and to lay down his life to satisfy the wrath of God against us for our sin and to be raised to new life to offer us new life that we could live in the presence of God forever, and to be called His children forever and ever. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the entry into history of the God who promised in a garden to save those who rebelled against Him. Amen? Right? And you get opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family. A lot of you are going to gather around the table with family that you don't see but maybe once or twice a year, and they're going to talk about whatever they talk about, and you're going to talk about whatever you all talk about, and maybe share old jokes or laugh about old movies or whatever that you've seen. But you're also going to get opportunities to talk about what really matters and about Jesus. And I don't want you to, when the question turns to what is it that you really believe, to go, um, well, mm mm-hmm, right? We've got to be able to explain the gospel clearly. This is the most important message that's ever been entrusted to anybody ever. And we get to be the messengers and heralds of it. We have that privilege. So, um, back to Genesis here for a second, all right? Um, if you look at Genesis, we have seen the whole book. We have looked at some of the great pieces of the biblical story. If you want to summarize the biblical story... It goes creation, fall, cross, redemption, new creation, right? And in Genesis, you get the creation and the fall, the two first big pieces of that overarching biblical story. And we begin to see how God is, is chosen a people and is starting to, to make a people for himself who are going to follow him and obey him, and he's going to make covenants with them and they are going to be participants in the redemption that God is bringing to the world. And and so we've looked at the flood, and we've looked at the Tower of Babel, and we've seen the lives of the patriarchs, and we've walked all the way through. And now we come to the end of the book and the very last chapter. And this chapter has three separate incidents that all point to God not only as covenant maker he is that. He is the God who makes and establishes covenants with those he loves, but also that he's the covenant keeper. He's the one who works through people despite sin, despite death, to bring about hope and deliverance for his people. And so I want to dive into this chapter and look at these three incidents uh, and, and just see exactly how God is revealing himself in these things. Uh, And this chapter begins just after Jacob has died. We've walked all the way through Jacob's whole life, and we've seen all of the ups and downs of his relationship with God and his relationship with his wives and with his children. And we've seen Jacob finally pass into glory and, and him looking forward to the promises and the blessings that are yet to come, knowing that God is going to keep his word, you know, Jacob finally dies in faith looking for God's blessing and reward to come without all of his scheming, but simply on the basis of his grace. And chapter 50 opens just after Jacob reads his last. Uh, look at, the, look at the, the book here with me. Uh, Genesis 50, beginning of verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying... My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the thresh, threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel-Mizriam. Mizraim. is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father... Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, if you look at your outline there uh, on the back of your bulletin, I've titled this section, A Promise Kept. And at one level, that's uh, what it is. It's just the account of how Joseph and his brothers listened to their father's dying wishes to be buried in the land. And last week, when we looked at chapter 49 we read how, uh, how Jacob gives explicit instructions to his sons. Bury me in the, in the cave, in the field at Machpelah, the one that my grandfather Abraham bought from the Hittites for a sum of money with the field. That's the possession that we have in the land. Go put me there. I want to be buried with my fathers. I want to be buried in the land that God promised I want to enjoy, even after I'm dead, the covenant with God and the blessings that go with it. And so he says, I want my bones not to lie in Egypt, but in the land of my fathers, the land that God promised, because I am trusting God that one day he's going to give us all of that land that he promised. And so Jacob's sons are faithful to carry out their father's dying wish. And that's good, but the text also notes... And Jacob was embalmed. Uh, he, he was embalmed Egyptian fashion. Uh, it took the full 40 days to complete that. If you want to read about that, it's kind of a gross process. Uh, they mix all these spices in with the body and dry everything out. And they put the organs in jars and it's, and pull the brain out through the nose. And I mean, it's really kind of nasty how they did this. But it took 40 days to do that. Uh, but they spent 70 days in mourning were Joseph's father. Now, to give you just a point of comparison, that's two days less than would be required of a Pharaoh passed away. So obviously Joseph and his family are held in high esteem. And at the end of it all, after all the official mourning is passed, then Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he asks for and receives permission to leave Egypt. Now, He's never left Egypt since he got there, but he asks for permission to leave Egypt to bury his father in the land of Canaan, and so Joseph and all of his family, with the exception of their children and their possessions that they have there in the land, uh, all go up to the family plot, and they are accompanied by an armed guard and this huge entourage of Egyptian officials and noblemen. So this huge mass of people go marching out of Egypt up to bury Joseph's father, uh, Jacob. And when they get close to the burial ground, they have a period of mourning there for seven days. And the Canaanites who live there see this massive wad of Egyptian people. No, they're not all Egyptians, but there's a lot of Egyptians (laughs) and a few Hebrews in there, and, and they, recognize, they recognize it. They renamed the place Abel Mizraim, which means field or meadow of mourning. But it also sounds like, in Hebrew, the Hebrew for uh, the Egyptian mourning place, okay? The place where the Egyptians had their, you know, their big thing. And you you need to try to imagine, this is a Middle Eastern culture, and so, you know, when you have the official mourning going on, you've got the wailing and the weeping and the, you know, the torn robes and the ash everywhere and, you know, it's a, you're in mourning and everybody knows. It's not like, you know, today where we have a modern day funeral and everybody puts on their one black tie and their black suit and they go for the funeral and it's over and then we eat. You know, this was like an extended deal and you, you, Showed your love and affection and care for the person that had died by the extent of the mourning that you went through, and so, um, and it's a public thing. And so, even the pagans recognize that this is a significant event that this man has has died. Uh, even the even the Egyptians, even the Canaanites, recognize that Joseph's passing is a significant thing. And at one level, that's all the text is about is just this long description of how they went to go mourn and, and, and what the process was and how they got there and all that kind of thing. And it's just about an old man being buried with great ceremony by his sons. But if you look a little closer at the text, what you see is it's about how God kept his promises to Jacob you look in your Bible back in chapter 46, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what God says. Uh, In verse 3 and 4 of chapter 46, God says, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I myself, in other words, I as God, I'm going to go with you, Jacob, you don't need to be afraid to, live the, to leave the land because I'm not confined just to the boundaries of the land. I'll be there too. And I will also bring you up again out of the land, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Now, look at the text here. Did God keep his word to Jacob? You better believe it. Who is the nearest to the deathbed when Jacob dies? Joseph closes his eyes, literally closes his eyes, Joseph. Joseph is the one who falls on his deceased father's body and weeps over him and gives him a final kiss goodbye. It's Joseph who supervises the embalming and the burial. It's, you know, that's what God meant, I think, when it says, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. It literally happened that way, but then all aspects of the burial and everything are supervised by Joseph, this son that he never thought he would see again. God tells him in chapter 46, you go down to Egypt and you'll not only see your son, you'll live there. And when you die there, he will be the one to take care of your body. And so, so let me ask you again, did God keep his promise? Yeah. Did God go with Jacob down into Egypt? Absolutely. Did God bring Jacob back from there? Just like he said. Yes, he did. This whole passage is about these whole, all these verses, 14 verses, are about how God fulfilled his promise through these people to bring Jacob back to the land where he wanted to be. Right? God kept his word. God is faithful even to old men, even after they are dead. Right? And of course, those who are faithful, as Jesus reminds us, they're not really dead, are they? The God, they're really alive. This is why he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, right? God is faithful to keep his word, even to old men, even after they're gone. God is keeping his promise to Jacob. Now, I want you to see in the next section God's providential purposes here. Uh, look with me. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, this is the second incident where God reveals himself as the covenant-keeping God. Joseph's brothers are justifiably afraid that now that the old man is dead, that those who sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt are going to suffer some retribution. By the way, raise your hand if someone has sold you into slavery and you had the power to return the favor If you, not at least, be tempted, right? (laughs) Can I get an amen? I would definitely be thinking about it, right? Wait a minute. They sold me here as a slave, and then I went to prison on a false charge, and now, now I get my opportunity to return that beautiful moment, right? Uh. But Joseph, in his actions here, reveals himself to be the true worshiper of the God who keeps covenant with his people because he sees things from God's perspective. He recognizes that the evil that his brothers planned, and they they had planned on selling him into slavery and them never seeing him again. Got rid of that boy. See what becomes of those dreams now. See you, pal. Have fun. Let's go get a cheeseburger. You know, I mean, seriously, that's what they thought. Um, And his brothers were purified and redeemed by the effects of their guilt and the need for repentance that they had over the course of their life. They felt this terrible guilt over what they had done, and God used that in their life to bring them to repentance and to bring about the transformation of some of those brothers like Judah who had a very checkered history, but at the end is willing to lay down his life for his brothers. And in addition to that, he sees that from God's perspective, look, the fact that I got here meant that thousands, maybe even millions of people were saved from starvation and death. Because if I hadn't been here, there would have been nobody to interpret Pharaoh's dream and if they, if they hadn't had an interpretation, they wouldn't have known that seven years of famine were coming after the seven years of plenty, and everybody would have died, including all of you. And and what he sees is that God had a purpose and a plan, even in allowing great evil to come on him, Right? And so, and so Joseph is content to leave all the final judgment up to God. He says, am I in the place of God? Am I God that I should deal out vengeance, in other words? And he says, look, I, I see God's hand at work here in keeping covenant with his people because if it hadn't been for you guys selling me into slavery uh, a few years after I got here, you all would have starved to death in the land of Israel. But God used the evil and sin that you committed against me. And despite all that harm, God still worked His plan because He had a covenant that He had made with us. And He is keeping it. Even despite sin and evil and wickedness and rebellion, God is still keeping it. And God shows Himself through the way that He has worked in Joseph's life to bring Joseph now to the point of forgiveness and reconciliation of his brothers. And he reveals himself in the grace that his brothers now experience, even in spite of their sin. And most of all, I think God reveals himself that he is the God who brings good even out of evil. Now, notice what I did not say I did not say that God allows evil so that good may come. Okay? Or that everything that happens is good. What I'm saying is that God uses evil, He permits evil, so that, and it doesn't interfere with the accomplishment of His good purposes for the people that He loves. And in that, I think there are some hints of the gospel because God uses one man and all of his suffering. To bring about salvation for a multitude of people. And God does not take delight in the in the performance of evil, in the perpetuation of evil, in the persistence of evil or sin, but he is a God of justice and love, and he brings good out of it for those that he loves. Amen. And he allows one man, Jesus, to suffer greatly so that masses of people all over the world, all down through human history, could be saved. And God is the covenant keeper who, uh, who it works in such a way that sin and evil don't thwart his plans in the present and they don't interfere with his plans in the future. And so we're able to see even evil and the things that happen to us that are awful as merely a tool that God is using to bring about our final deliverance from sin and death and evil. So, as we look at this, what we see is that we can, like Joseph, be kind even to those who harmed us. Because God has been indescribably kind to those who rebelled against him. Amen? Amen. And, he, you know, forgiveness, what it is, basically is forgiving the unforgivable in other people because God in Christ forgave the unforgivable in us, right? And so Joseph is able to see things from God's perspective and go, look, you know, you may have intended evil here, and you certainly did, and you intended to harm me, but guess what? God had made a covenant with me. His promises were going to still stand, and no matter what you did... God was still going to accomplish His purposes and He was going to bring greater good out of even what you intended as the maximum evil because He loves me and He loves you and I'm going to let Him deal with you but I'm going to extend forgiveness to you because God extended forgiveness and grace to me. Now, last incident here. Uh... Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Children also of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Joseph lived long enough, in other words, to see his great-great-grandchildren through his son Ephraim and his great-grandchildren through Manasseh. He lived a long life, not quite as long as Jacob's 147 years, or Abraham's 180, or Isaac's 175, but nevertheless, a long life. And he was more blessed at the end of his life than at the beginning. And when his own days are drawing to a close, he speaks to his brothers one final prophetic word. He says, look, I know that I'm dying, and I do not, just like my fathers before me, don't bury me in Egypt. I might be a high official in Egypt, but I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. I am one of the descendants of Jacob, whom God made covenant with. And I do not want to be buried here. He he says, look, I'm looking forward to the day when we're all going to get out of Egypt. This is the place that God is going to make us into a nation. But one day we're all going to get out of here. And he's going to, God is going to take us to the land that he promised to our forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, look, now you swear to me, because I won't be able to enforce it after I'm dead, but you swear to me right now that you're not going to bury me in Egypt. And when you leave, because you're going to leave, you take my bones with you when you go and you bury me in the land and and joseph i think knew what was coming he knew maybe the winds of change in the in the house of pharaoh were already starting to blow and he could see that the day was soon going to come when he and his family would not have the same status that they did while he was alive and he could foresee perhaps that his his people would be enslaved in Egypt soon afterwards and even if he couldn't see that yet he knew what God had told Abraham a couple hundred years as it happens before that your people are going to be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years and then they're going to come out and so he says look here God is surely going to visit you and i love that expression that he that of God's visiting you know it's not like he's coming over for tea but it's the idea that god is going to come in a way that it's powerful and you're going to see him working he's going to be present among you and did that happen by the way oh yeah okay called the 10 plagues the red sea crossing the pillar of, of fire at night and the pillar of cloud in the daytime manna from heaven quail out of off the Edge of the desert, which by the way sounds like a great idea to me. Whale are tasty. All right, they are. Deep fried in peanut oil. Mmm, that's some good stuff. All right. Uh, And did God provide in a mighty way? Yes. Did God visit them? Yes. And it's this idea that, look, there's going to be miracles and power. And you're going to see God deliver in ways that are still going to be spoken about generations later. Did that happen? Yeah. And that prophetic word, I think, Joseph gives to give them comfort. Because they know, he knows what's coming. You know this is coming. He says, you embalm me, you put me in a coffin. And on the day you leave, you take me with... And I think that over the next four hundred years that as they went into slavery over four hundred and thirty years in Egypt, every time they walked by joseph's coffin it was a it was a it was a standing symbol one day God's coming one day he's going to visit, and we're taking old Joe and going and they were it was a symbol of hope, even though he had died he is saying, you take my bones, don't make me a tomb here, make me a coffin, put me in it, and when you leave, because God is coming to rescue, God is going to deliver, and you're getting out of here. And and at this point, we're at the end, basically, of a long study through one of my favorite books of Scripture. The Genesis great stuff. I, I'm with Francis Schaeffer. The most important verse in the Bible is Genesis on verse one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth right because from that one verse you get a whole lot of stuff that there is a god who is distinct from the universe who is personal who created right and and everything else flows from that and everything else in the rest of your bible flows from the book of genesis That the Messiah that we worship at Christmas is a descendant of Jacob through the tribe of Judah. Yeah, that that guy, Judah. The one who has the checkered history. The one who carried on a relationship with his daughter-in-law. And it's actually through that relationship that Jesus Christ comes. God is still the covenant keeper of and covenant maker. Amen. And I want you just to remember three things. First of all, that one that God is still the covenant maker and covenant keeper. And we looked at, you know, as we as you kind of look back, we looked at God's covenant with Noah and how he promised never again to flood the whole earth. And then we looked at God's covenant with Abraham and his covenant with Isaac and then with Jacob and then with Joseph and his brothers. We saw how God Picked out deeply flawed men and made covenant with them. You know, remember Noah? Goes through the flood, offers sacrifice to God. Then he grows some grapes and gets uh, drunk and naked in his tent like a hillbilly on vacation. Right? And and you go, what? where did that come from? Right? Noah was not a perfect man. He was a deeply flawed man that God made covenant with. Abraham, he couldn't remember whether the gal he was married to was his wife or his sister. Right? Every time he got in a jam, he was lying about that relationship. Isaac, same problem. Couldn't remember. Let's see, is this my sister here or is this my wife? I don't remember. Okay? Jacob, well, he's got a longer list. (laughs) Joseph's brothers, Joseph, yeah, not perfect men, flawed men, but nevertheless, men that God made covenant with because he chose them because he loved them, and by the way, God is still that kind of God. If you don't believe me, look around in this room, you see any perfect people. Well, there's me, but, you know, the rest of you, right? No, there are no perfect people. God still picks out deeply flawed people, and he chooses them because he loves them, and he makes and establishes and keeps a covenant with them in spite of all of our sin and stuff, right? We carry with us a whole bunch of mess wherever we go. But God loves us, and He makes us participants in and recipients of His covenant. God still keeps His covenant of love and grace with us, even despite serious sin and evil. Right? Why? Because, first of all, sinful, evil people are all He has to work with. Amen? There is nobody on this earth who is a perfect person. Uh, and, but second and more importantly, it's because He loves us and He wants us to know and follow and worship Him because He is supremely worth knowing and obeying and worshiping. And God is still the covenant maker and covenant keeper. So let me ask you a personal question. Are you in covenant with God? Are you in covenant with God? Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. Every time we take communion, we say those words, right? A lot of people might come into a church like this and they would more or less assume, well, yeah, I'm in covenant with God. But let me ask you again in a little more specific way. Have you ever personally put your trust in Jesus Christ? That he died on the cross for your sins, and was raised from the dead. Because that is the entry point into that covenant with God. All those who believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. All of those people are participants in, in and recipients of the new covenant. But all those who have not are outside the covenant of grace and love and truth. And they will not enjoy relationship with God, either now or in eternity. Are you in covenant with God? If you are, rejoice. Amen? Because He is still, since He is the covenant maker and covenant keeper, He is still keeping you and me as part of that covenant. And if not, then can I invite you, encourage you, exhort you, beg you, plead you with you to enter into that covenant by faith in the God who loves you and sent His Son into the world to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserved, take away your sin, and to be raised from the dead to give you new life. Second thing I want us to remember that God still brings good out of great evil. God still brings good out of great evil. Whenever there's a natural disaster or a tragedy or some great evil that's perpetuated uh, among human beings, there's always this question. Well, where was God when X and so happened? Where was God when the Aurora shooter went nuts in that movie theater? Where was God when The Holocaust happened. Where was God during X and so war? Where was God when the bombs fell? Whatever. Where was God when Hurricane Katrina hit, etc.? Right? And here's what I would say, okay? A lot of people go, well, either God can't prevent evil, and so therefore he's weak, or he allows it because he prefers it, and thus he is an evil being. But here's what the Bible presents, that He is the God who allows evil to bring, and He uses it to bring about good. He is the God who redeems and who fixes the broken people and things of this world. He's the God who brings beauty from ashes, who rebuilds what is fallen, who restores what the locusts have eaten. And He uses all the devastation that life can bring to bring us good and Him glory. And here's why. Because eliminating all the evil from the world would mean real simple solution. Eliminate all of the people from the world. In my snarkier moments, I ask people who ask that question, well, what if God decided to eliminate all the evil from the world starting with you? Of course, nobody wants God to do that. They just want God to get rid of everybody and everything that bugs them. Right? But here's the reality. Eliminating all the evil from the world means eliminating all the people. And so God, in love, chooses instead to redeem, to heal, to restore, to mend, to shape our sin and suffering that we produce for ourselves and others. Making good out of what isn't and bringing life from death. And a lot of us, a whole lot of us, have been deeply hurt. By things that we have done, by things that others have done to us, we carry some scars, maybe even some open wounds. And we wonder, well, where was God when he allowed that to happen in my life? I hope none of us have been sold into slavery like Joseph. But we have nevertheless had some horrible stuff happen to us. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were rejected. Maybe your spouse had an affair uh, and left you for that person. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you got some horrible disease. Maybe, I don't know. But here's what I do know for sure. Did God allow that to happen? Yes. Could He have prevented it? Yes. Does He love you? Yes. Will He, if you turn to Him and trust Him, redeem even that thing that hurts you? Yes, He will. Yes, He will. Even if you have been chewed up and spit out and left for dead by the people of this world, God is still the God of Joseph, the God who redeems even the worst of things to bring about the best of things, that even the evil that we did or that others intended evil uh, for us in doing, that he is still the God who brings salvation to his people and redeems what is broke. Last thing, that God still visits his people to bring deliverance. Amen? Amen. Lots of people somehow think that God's intervention, to the extent that it happened at all, is all in the past. Well, you know, back then, I mean, this was the Old Testament, and, you know, God, you know, spoke through donkeys, and, you know, He parted the Red Sea and brought down manna from heaven, and, you know, God just doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, God's just not, He just doesn't work like that, and, you know, He just He doesn't visit in that kind of dramatic fashion anymore. But here's the reality. Here's the truth. We still serve the same God. And He is at work for us also. And He is at work bringing a much greater deliverance than even Joseph experienced. Amen? Because we who are recipients of a better covenant are looking forward not to having our bodies buried in the land, but to having our bodies resurrected into the presence of the living God. That on the day that we, as the old spirituals go, cross over Jordan, that it's not some muddy creek in the dusty desert, that we are crossing over into the presence of God and to dwell in the the real promised land, ever, ever. Amen? Let's pray, and let's worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob together. All right? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we praise You that even today You are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob the God who saved Noah and his family from the flood, the God who flung the stars into existence, who made Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and made him a living being, who brought Eve from his side to be his uh, complete helper, the one who made him whole, and to be in relationship with you, and who, when they fell into sin, brought forth A plan that you had had from the beginning of creation to redeem all the people of the world through a baby in a manger who would grow to become a man, to live a perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, and to be raised from the dead to bring us into covenant with you, just as the patriarchs were in covenant with you. And just as you trusted them, uh, they trusted you, Father, and they saw you work in their lives father we see you we pray father that we who live all these years later would trust you in the way that they did and to see you as the god of steadfast love who keeps his covenant with those he loves father we pray in jesus name